This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps Podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, founder of the B Podcast Network and author of the books, School X and How to Be a Transformative Principal. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, independent media. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricula development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. You know, one of these days, Jethro, I'm going to leave out the positive and it's going to change the whole tenor of our introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, after interviewing a guest last week by myself, it is good to be back on air with you. Oh, yes, it is good to be back. And we're excited to welcome Tony Brasunas to the show today. He's an independent journalist and author of the forthcoming Red, White and Blind, The Truth About Censorship in America and the Rise of Independent Media which aims to explore media distortion and disinformation in the United States, as well as the upswell of independent media that has risen up to combat it. Tony, welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. Glad to be here. Good to have you, Tony. We're glad to have you. Thank you for being here. I think uh, where I would like to jump in is where we started getting on a little rant before uh, we started about um, Twitter being owned by Elon Musk and how that is changing things very rapidly and 
why don't you start by telling us about what you've seen around censorship and why it's important for there to be independent media um, or just the truth about it would work too, Tony. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and let me jump in because I do think we're going to have such a fascinating conversation, but I think a preliminary thing, Tony, would be to help us understand how you define independent media as part of that answer. Yeah. Sure. So let's jump right in. Um, Yeah. So I've been uh, researching this for about five years. Uh, I started writing Red, White, and Blind in 2019. And then as I was writing, the whole pandemic unfolded. So it's been a really interesting adventure just uh, writing and rewriting the book. So independent media. So I do, I I spent a lot of time uh, in the first part of the book, distinguishing some terms so that we're talking about the same thing. So I compare independent media and corporate media are the two main types of media that I talk about in the book. Uh, Independent Let's just start with corporate media is basically all of the newspapers, television, internet, radio, all of that owned by five giant corporate conglomerates. Um, and we saw this consolidation throughout the entirety of the 20th century and into the 21st. So that by 2010, you have these five corporations that own pretty much 95% of what you're going to hear if you're not trying or you're not, you know, you're not obviously looking for independent media. So that's corporate media, all of the stuff controlled by by those. And then independent media, it's a little bit of a definition by uh, subtraction. It's everything else. It's uh, independent media is this show. It's, it's anybody that set themselves up um, and it can be a small organization or it can be a single person um, that's covering the news or is offering opinion perspective um, on current events. Uh, That's what I would say is independent media news. There's obviously other independent media that focuses on things like sports or arts or something like that. So that's independent media in a sense. Um, And I actually get a little bit more into the the weeds uh, later in the book, distinguishing a couple of new trends uh, because of the complex media world we're in and that we're entering as this, uh, what I call the new enlightenment is unfolding, is the corporate media is trying to maintain control of the narrative. That it's that is slipping away from it as the uh, internet gives birth to independent media, and so we have a couple of these interesting things. So there's fact checkers um, that are often part of corporate media, but they tr- they try to appe- appear not to be, and also what I call uh, astroturf independent media. So this is independent things that look like independent media, but you lift back the cover and you see it's actually controlled through a couple of you know a couple of leaps by the same organizations that c- control the corporate media. So that's sort of a longer definition um, to, to sort of get into some of the different, um, you know, like in biology, they they distinguish different phylum and subphylums and things like that to get into it. But essentially, corporate media is the big behemoths that own almost everything money can buy. Independent media is everything else. So why is there anything wrong with that situation of having corporate media? Um, and what should we pay attention to when we are viewing corporate media? Um, yeah, so there's a lot of things wrong with the current model. Um, the first one is that when you have five corporations uh, that own pretty much everything Americans uh, are exposed to in terms of thought, opinion, uh, versions of current events, um, you you end up with this tremendous bias, all these different kinds of bias that uh, dictate what is covered in corporate media and how it's covered. And so that's another distinction I do in the book, not to get too pedantic here, but there's innocent bias systemic bias and nefarious bias. There's three different kinds of bias that sort of infiltrate media coverage. And so innocent bias is just like what we all have based on our upbringing, uh, based on our, you know, race, uh, you know, sexual preference, whatever, Um, country of origin. 
Then you have systemic bias, which is the bias that really infects all of the corporate media. The bias that comes from being part of a giant corporation that has interests way beyond how this particular event might be reported. They're very interested in managing the narrative. They're very interested in all kinds of different types of things, what their advertisers might want, maintaining their access to elite sources, all of these kinds of things that really drive how uh, the corporate news covers current events. And the nefarious bias I also spend time in because that's, I, think, I think it's important to acknowledge, you know, we had Operation Mockingbird came out in the 70s. You know, we know that um, not just in other countries, but in our country as well, there are covert forces that are directly and deliberately manipulating coverage of news based on their own personal um, agenda. And Tony, if I can jump in for a sec, for sure, those who absolutely. may not be quite as uh, steeped in this as you are right now, tell us briefly what Operation Mockingbird was. Sure. So Operation Mockingbird, uh, there was uh, the church committee uh, in 1973 came out. And so this is an era right after, you know, the, the assassinations in the 60s. Um, there was a number of secret coups that nobody was sure what would happen. A number of things were going on. There were some uh, revelations kind of on the fringes of military surveillance of American citizens. And so there was this groundswell of interest. And so this congressional uh, Senator Church uh, convened this committee in Congress. And the idea was to basically figure out what's really going on uh, behind all of this. And so they revealed all of this. It's still the most amazing revelations we have about CIA and sort of covert intelligence activities in this country that's that's ever really come to light. Hopefully we'll have another one at some point. Um, but so one of the things it revealed, it revealed MK Ultra, it revealed COINTELPRO, and we could spend time getting yeah. into those. But for our purposes and for my purpose with Red, White, and Blind, the most important revelation was Operation Mockingbird. And this was an operation that the CIA ran for somewhere around 15, 20 years involving at least 400, that's what they admitted to, but probably there were more like a thousand journalists in mainstream media that were being either uh, fed news by the CIA and by the intelligence or actual agents or were people that were very famous, very well known, who admitted to either talk about certain things or not talk about others or talk about them in different ways. So it's basically... It was revealed and it's declassified now. It's not a crazy theory. This absolutely happened. And I write in my book why it's almost definitely still going on just in slightly different fashion. Yeah. Um, the news is being manipulated by people that have a lot of secret agendas that want things to be covered in certain particular ways. So that's Operation Mockingbird. Excellent. So talk a little bit then. So that's what, 50 years ago, right? That we begin to see some of the stuff emerging. Obviously, from our perspective, you know, the Cyber Traps podcast, we're looking at the impact of technology on all of this. What, in your opinion, is the biggest effect that social media has had on that kind of operation or that kind of situation? So I take a, just a brief step back and say, not just social media, let's look at the as a whole. Like, what is the role the Internet as a whole is having on uh, me, uh, news coverage and media coverage? Because this is probably like this one of the biggest questions I look at in the book. And I would say that the internet is having a tremendously, well, a huge effect. Let's just start with that, that I would say is mostly positive, but it's a real mix. And so we need to get into it and dive into it. And I think this is something you guys do really well and we can talk about it. So on the one hand, what the internet is doing is it's causing what I call the new enlightenment. It's basically bringing about this entire new level of access to information, access to knowledge, access to uh, data. So you had in the first enlightenment, right, when uh, Gutenberg invented the movable type printing press, had no idea this is late 1400s, 
that was going to just usher in this flowering of literacy, which then began this flowering of writing. So people could read, people could then write. Then you had the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, the Reformation. It toppled systems of power. It toppled feudalism. It toppled the Catholic Church. I mean, largely their power on, <laughs> well, we can get into that. But, you know, basically the Catholic Church being able to say there is one truth and the earth is the center of the universe. And if you question that, you're going on the rack. You're going in, in in the dungeon, right? Sure. A vernacular, so, so, a, a, ver, a vernacular Bible was a huge deal in terms yes. of interpretation oh, yeah. and challenging the authority of the church. You're absolutely right about that. And it led to the constitution and, and the revolutions in France and in this country and other places. And so now we have this written constitution, huge to think. So we have this First Amendment. And one of the main parts of the First Amendment is the freedom of speech and the freedom of the press. And these, I say, are twin rights. One is the ability to, to speak and the other is the ability to write. Um, and so, so that is the first enlightenment. And now what we have with the internet and starting in the 90s, I would say, we had suddenly this new ability, this new access. And it's Whereas the first enlightenment brought about the ability from people to write and read, and it was a big deal. This is even bigger because it's now suddenly you, the three of us can have a conversation, you know, we can upload it to the internet and, you know, maybe 10 or maybe 10 million or maybe a billion people can see it. Right. And there's nobody intermediating. There's no Pope. There's no president. There's no, uh, well, on YouTube, we could say, or Twitter, maybe there are, but like by and large, what the internet enables is this disintermediation of the distribution and, and sharing of information. And not just information, but connection. Like we could be talking about any topic, whether it's spirituality or science or anything, and suddenly new ideas can flower and it's happening much, much more quickly. And so it's this tremendously positive effect on global consciousness, like the global population, the ability to share information. And it is threatening, just as the first enlightenment did, it's threatening the top-down distribution of information that has been established over the last hundred years. This was not envisioned in the constitution. The constitution did not envision a freedom of the press for people working at five giant corporations to tell you what's true and what's not. That's not the, uh, the first amendment. <laughs> We've moved away from that. And I cover that a bit in red, white, and blind. We've moved away from that to this top-down model and that model is threatened. And so be when any big animal is threatened and gets put in a corner, it starts to do all kinds of unpredictable things and things that can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing, so, so what I, when I talk about the truth about disinformation, what I say is you have to look at disinformation as not just coming from people that maybe don't really know what they're saying and sort of speak out of turn about something, and you know, which is the way the corporate media wants us to think about disinformation. But really the primary purveyors of disinformation are the corporate media itself trying to manage the narrative and narratives that are partially true and partially false. So that's why I talk about the other part of the book is about media consciousness and this idea of developing inside of ourselves the ability to explore the media, trust our own mind, read, have a balanced media diet, and, um, and you know, avoid some of the, the best we can, you can't avoid the disinformation, but to be able to approach it from a, a little bit more conscious, intelligent place. Yeah, I, I like that approach of this uh, consciousness or awareness of what it is, because it it puts the onus on people making their own decisions, which is something that I personally believe strongly in. And so can we talk about some examples of disinformation that have come from the corporate media um, and 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 how they have made an impact? And then especially things that have later been proven to be absolutely true that were disinformation by the corporate media? 
Sure. Um, what, so one of the things I did with Red, White and Blind is I try to avoid getting pigeonholed into the right or the left or the red or the blue, right? Because that's it's, it's such a polarized environment right now. And I come originally from a left perspective, like I was, a, we could talk about me being censored at Huffington Post for covering Bernie Sanders. And I come from that side of things. But having written this book, I've really realized it's, it's a nonpartisan or it's a bipartisan or it's a omnipartisan issue. Um, mm -hmm. So one of the things I try to do with the book is I pull examples that at least initially will try not to get up the, the sort of offend one side, not the other. So I start with uh, the Jeffrey Epstein story, um, because I think that's fairly a nonpartisan outrage. It's just one of the worst things that you could imagine as a human being, like what was being perpetrated there. For 20 years, thousands of girls, I mean, just it's a, it's atrocious and it's abhorrent. And why was that not covered for 20 years, right? So maybe that's not exactly, you asked about disinformation. That's, I would say, is censorship. So I, I, I talk about disinformation and censorship as there are these sort of two sides of it. One is removing things, important things, removing important perspectives. And the other is, you know, building up false perspectives or adding false uh, ideas into proper perspectives or something like that. So that I start with um, Epstein, but maybe more a better example for your question is the second story I go into, which is the origin of COVID, the origin of the coronavirus, right? So immediately um, within within days, I mean, literally like in January of 2020, there's already a lot of scientists saying, look, it looks like this probably came out of a lab. But immediately the media went instead with, the, with Fauci's perspective, he called this a preposterous majestic leap that you could even possibly suggest it came out of a lab. And then for a year and a half, it was pretty much off limits. I mean, the New York Times never ran a balanced piece on it. On, on the, you know, it's at this point, it's the, it's not even balanced. It's like it's probably ninety eight percent likely it came out of lab, and maybe there's a two percent chance it came out of the wet market. They haven't even run fifty fifty stories. You know, it was like it had to be a lie. And why was that? And I get into it in the book, and we don't have to litigate this unless you want to. But I mean, there were a lot of people that were involved, you know, uh, Dazak and, and Fauci, and then the, the funding of uh, gain-of-function research going into the Chinese lab. They didn't want this to be, look, we screwed up. This virus came out and, you know, locked down the planet for whatever. I mean, we could get into all of the negative parts of that. When, you know, accurate, open coverage of that where like all scientists, scientific views could be viewed, all democratic aspects of that could be viewed, we probably would have had a much better sense of where this virus came from. We probably would have had a much better chance of, you know, putting it under wraps much earlier. Like, is this, you know, if it, if it originated from this lab in this way, then we probably can figure out, you know, is a vaccine gonna succeed? Is it likely to, you know, re reinfect people? All of these kinds of things, but that story was censored deliberately in the corporate media. Independent media was a different beast and that's why it's a real salutary force. But in the corporate media, it was censored. Um, so I go there and then we could get into that a little more. I wanna give you a couple other quick examples so you can pick what you'd like to talk about. Weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, right? I mean that, you know, Judith Miller in the New York Times wrote a number of pieces. There are a bunch of people all over the corporate media. We're just absolutely certain. Colin Powell up on the, you know, at the UN saying, this is, uh, you know, this is not a theory. This is, he has weapons of mass destruction. Um, the first Iraq war I talk also about um, the ambassador's daughter in Congress pretending to be a nurse uh, who had been in Kuwait, pretended she made up a story about babies being ripped from incubators and every corporate media covered it like it was the truth. And it turns out it was a PR story and she was the daughter of the ambassador had never like actually been a nurse in Kuwait or anything. You know, so I mean, and I laugh, but it's it's 
utterly atrocious what happens right then you end up with these crazy wars and all these people dying and stuff so it's a really big deal um that answer your question yeah yeah so thanks for sharing <laughs> some of those examples i think it's important for us to to be aware of what those are my question when i'm hearing this is are these people just evil who work for corporate media or is there is there one person saying this is the storyline? Like if anybody has worked for a corporation, you know, there's a storyline. If you've worked for any organization that's bigger than like five people, there's a storyline that you want like to us. portray. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so is, are these people just evil? Are they good people doing the best they can and they get hoodwinked? I mean, how do we understand this? It's a great question. Um, and it's a question that I think is, you know, confronted people, you know, certainly the founding of our country is like, how can you create a decent government out of people that are going to be self-interested and often make bad mm -hmm. decisions? It's a mix, you know, I, I'm sure there's some people that are that are bad, nefarious people um, that really don't care, you know, sociopaths and psychopaths that, that want to take wealth, wealth and power and everybody else be damned. It's a small minority of people, though, uh, the, the much larger number of people, and we see this in like, you know, any analysis of history are people either aren't aware um, or are aware but are kind of just a little cowardly a little bit scared to, to to raise up an issue because you know they're being well taken care of um with this so i've spent a lot of time thinking about the science question around the like the origin of the the virus and some of the other stuff around covid and you know you you have to really acknowledge the role that big pharma plays in the same way that the role that the big gun makers play in starting wars I mean, these are two industries that really don't get scrutinized enough. A drug company is going to make more money when people are more sick and, and from treating it rather than curing it, right? That's an unbelievably clear incentive that we just don't talk about. It's really bad, right? I mean, there's a real, what I call perverse incentives. I didn't make up that term. It's an idea of a perverse incentive. A large organization is incentivized to do something that is actually going to be at the detriment of humanity, right? And then same with the weapons companies, right? Like they make way more money if there's war. If there's people being killed or people scared of being killed, they're going to buy a lot more weapons, right? These are, so maybe we need to make them nonprofits or we need to think about a different <laughs> way to have these kinds of corporations. I mean, you do need innovation, I guess. We want better weapons, maybe. I'm not sure if we need innovation there we probably want innovation in, in drugs but it's so tied up now in um patents and like they 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 basically the big drug companies they don't want any drugs out there that they can't make money off of so they actually fund scientists that will find problems with really existing good medications and so you see that i think really clearly in some of the covid stuff where you had um, they weren't able to do, nobody's funding studies that would have said, look, you can treat COVID with these repurposed drugs. You know, there's no, there's just no money in that where there's a tremendous amount of money in saying the only way you can treat it is with this other brand new thing we just came up with. There's a huge amount of money. Does that mean, you know, the vaccine or like remdesivir or uh, what's the latest one is, is bad? I don't know. But what I do know is bad is when you censor one side of the scientific debate. And that's what we saw. So I think yeah, go ahead. Well, forgive me, Tony, for jumping in, but uh, you know this is this is where I start putting on my social democracy hat and start having evil thoughts about capitalism. To be honest with you, because a lot of what you're describing on all ends of the spectrum is the unfortunate or even the the uh, dangerous consequences of the profit motive. And I think, kind of tying into what Jethro was saying earlier, you know, in terms of how do we view the corporations and their role in this disinformation, misinformation, is that you get a corporate mission 
that seeps down through every level of the corporation. And it guides how people act and the kinds of information they put out. So I'm not necessarily sure I would describe that as evil per se, but I think it would be probably basically decent people working in a system that is not altogether good and does not, as you correctly point out, necessarily have humanity's best interests at heart in terms of what they're trying to do at the end of the day, which is basically boost their profits, boost their stock price, and so forth. And I think that if we could somehow figure out a way to decouple that, then some of the information problem goes away. Now, how you maintain innovation, that's a separate question, but it's it's an important debate to have. No, I think for sure. And, you know, I didn't write a book about socialism. Um, I did, I, you know, in my earlier years, you know, when I was- I wasn't with, accusing you, truly. No, no, when I was with Bernie, so I, I really went there mentally. And and I've, I've kind of come back around, like, I think we do need, or there's some definite benefits to the free enterprise system and to profit driving innovation and to all of that. And we could get into that. That also plays a role in social media. If we want to get into that conversation, like sure. how, how we regulate social media so that there's still a profit motive and they can still be incentivized to succeed without trying to run our society, really. Um, so I think, you know, and you could we could also pull in like the, the Wall Street corporations and, uh, you know, maybe fossil fuel and some of these other uh, big industries that have an incentive that is different per- perhaps than what is best for humanity. But to bring it back to the media, yeah, I, I think that that's really true. What happens is you end up with what I call the narrative. And this is really what I what my book focuses around is this idea of there's a storyline. One of you were just saying, every organization has a storyline. Mm-hmm. And, and the bigger they are, the more they're committed to that storyline. And so you have something like the US government, right? It becomes very committed to a particular narrative, right? And if well, it's the course, narrative right. about right. the war or it's the narrative about a pandemic or it's the narrative about a uh, race for a particular office. And so the news organizations are also going to be committed to, well, what they're really committed to is that they have the power to deliver that narrative, right? So that is the number one incentive that the big five corporate conglomerates have is to maintain the power of dictating the narrative, not necessarily that any one narrative has to win, is that they maintain that power. And so I really distinguish this when I talk about systemic bias. A lot of people think, oh, it's what bleeds, it leads. You know, they're just after clicks. And to some extent, sure, like, you know, if you can publish one article and it gets a little more clicks than the other one, or, you know, you get a few more viewers, that matters. It makes a little, helps the bottom line. And it's not, and people even think they're cynical when they say that, like, oh, I'm a real cynic about the media. It's just, if it bleeds, it leads. That's not the half of it. If it was just that, you'd have like, you know, covering both sides of the coronavirus origins or, you know, both sides jumping on the Jeffrey Epstein story in 2005 instead of 2019, you know, that would have bled and led and, you know, it would have been a great story. No, it's it's this power of controlling the narrative. And so what the big corporate media um, behemoths are interested in is preserving that and they see their greatest threat as independent media. And the bad news for them is that they're losing. It's just a very slow, they're slowly losing. Like you saw CNN, they just Mm -hmm. had to scrap their $300 million streaming podcast service. I mean, CNN is, its days are numbered. Now it's a long number. I'm not telling you CNN is going to go away tomorrow, (laughs) but the days are numbered of that kind of top-down distribution of information in the same way that like feudalism and the Catholic church, like we're going through the death throes of these dinosaurs. 
Well, what's um, fascinating about yeah. that, Tony, is I'm old enough and I <laughs> feel like I'm the only one on this panel, but I'm old enough to remember when CNN was the disruptor, that they came yeah. in and they blew apart the model of the big three, ABC, NBC, CBS. And it was a new world. All of a sudden, you had this cable news network that was out there pushing a whole new model for collecting and distributing news. So maybe you're talking about kind of a cyclical process, you know, as, as we see CNN dying. I, I mean, if CNN came in not under the corporate model, I think I would see that. I, I think if there's a cycle we're in, we're renewing or we're getting close to the original or back to the intention of the First Amendment, right? Mm. The First Amendment is this idea that there's a free press. And the free press idea is not that like, certified official journalists get to write what they want. No, it's the same as a freedom of speech. Anybody can write what they want. Anybody can write a letter, put it in the mail, send it out to their friends. Anybody can write an email. Anybody, we're all journalists is the mm -hmm. idea, right? Because the term right. journalist wasn't even around at that time. Right. And so, so we're moving back to that. And so people get scared of it. Like, oh, there's no, there's no central truth. And that used to be, we could just turn on CNN or NPR. We'd know the truth. Well, but the actual, the truth is <laughs> that there is no one source of truth. You can't cover the news objectively. Not that aspiring to objectivity is bad. It's great. When you find somebody that aspires to objectivity and they do their best job, like you should put those people in your media diet and you should, you know, pay right. attention to them. But things change. People get biased. Maybe I'm really objective about, you know, gun rights but I'm super biased about abortion or something, right? I mean, it's like, there might be different issues to trust me on than to, than to, than to trust somebody else on, right? Because we all have our biases. So we're moving back and I would say this is the great cycle. And so we're moving back to a time when a thousand flowers bloom, there's gonna be all kinds of sources out there. Every party, every subgroup is gonna have their own media and then it's on us or we get to do it, right? I would right. say rather than we have to, we now get to compose what I call a balanced media diet not the first person to come up with this term, but I, but I use it a lot in my book, a balanced media diet. Where you, and what I propose, I, I studied hundreds of sources. I propose 40 sources. You do different ones each day. And then what happens is, and there's some corporate media in there. There's some independent media. I distinguish left from right. I distinguish party politics from real truer politics. And then I talk about deep politics and there's foreign news. And you compose this balanced media diet and then we get back to what we we're talking about before, which is media consciousness. And the idea mm -hmm. is that you develop this consciousness so that when you see a news report or some big thing comes up, there's a pandemic or there's a war, or there's an election, some big thing, you can say, okay, well, what what is this report? What are they saying? What do they want me to feel? You know, what are they not saying? Who gets to speak? Who doesn't get to speak? You know, it doesn't have to be this like profound thing, but you just start to ask those questions, and then you say, okay, well, let me go get this other perspective. And the beauty of that is not only that you'll get a little closer to the truth as you develop media consciousness, but you won't be polarized as much. You won't be partisan because you'll know that perspective. It's not like you're going to suddenly change your mind on, you know, the vaccine or the or abortion or whatever. But you know that perspective. So now you don't have to like shun your uncle and be scared of talking to your daughter or like whatever it is, you know, this this partisan polarization, because we all go through our life making important decisions, right? We're going to go through, at some point in your life, you're going to decide whether to get married, what kind of job to have, where to live, um, whether to travel, uh, whether to maybe get an abortion or get a vaccine or, or you know, own a gun or whatever. We're going to make these big decisions in our life. 
And so with media consciousness, in addition to the things I was just talking about, it enables us to make those decisions, those choices a little more truthfully, I, I would think, and live a little bit better life. You know, Tony, I think that's just such a great prescription for what this country needs right now. I, I do find a certain amount of humor bringing us back to the church committee and, and the events of the 60s and 70s, that what you're essentially calling for is a form of consciousness raising, except with respect to media, which of course was very much the 60s thing. So there are absolutely, you know, uh, tools to help us raise our consciousness. And I think that, you know, the kind of thing you're describing of, of looking at the media sources and trying to strike a balance is a really solid idea. Yeah, can you give us a a playbook, if you will, of how to evaluate a media source? Like, I think that it's it's good to have a balanced media diet, also. But how do I know which ones I can trust and which ones I should be suspicious of, or should I be suspicious of all of them? Uh, help us understand how to how to make those decisions. Besides just taking your list of forty, which I appreciate that you made that, but at the same time. Like that just is abdicating that responsibility to you, Tony, and saying, I'll just do what Tony says, which it doesn't sound like the right thing either. I'm sure you'd like it though. <laughs> Great point. No, I mean, of course I put the 40 sources there because I think that's a good balanced media diet. So it's like, you know, it's like you compose any diet for another person. I hope you do it. But ultimately, yes, it's like, you know, let's say I tell you to like eat just chickpeas and like make a fruit smoothie or something. And that might work for you, but it might not work for the next person. Right. So it's like, so yeah. So I think it's a, it's a really good question. Yeah. On the one hand, take my media balanced media diet and go with it, but I'm going to launch a website balanced media diet. I'm already building it. That's going to basically say, here's the diet I recommend, but you can customize it. You can change it. You can add your own sources and things like that, because what really matters is the goal is media consciousness. The goal is not to, yeah, read the sources Tony Bersunas thinks he should read. That's not the goal here. So how do you how do you distinguish them? So that's why I also do the diet, because I also didn't want to abdicate and just say, write some chapter in the book, say, go find a balanced media diet. Good luck with it. Um, so I thought actually doing the work was going to be helpful. So here's a starting point. And what I think what I think you can do when you said, should I trust certain and be suspicious? No, you got to start with suspicious of all of them, right? You because everybody has their bias. And the, the question is, is it an innocent bias? Is it a systemic bias? Is it a nefarious bias? Or is it all three? And so, you know, the bigger the organization, the more likely there's going to be all three going on. So like you look at CNN or you look at NBC News, there's all three biases going on for certain. We know that for sure. Um, you look at, you know, Cyber Traps podcast, there's probably some innocent bias. You know, you probably, you know, you should have some thick, but there's probably not systemic bias or nefarious bias. You know, Don't get I, me I, started on the Red Sox, you know. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so right. So we all have what we bring to the table and it's important to know that. And you do want to balance innocent bias too, right? You don't want to have all, every single one of your sources be like this, you know, one demographic because that's that demographic is ultimately going to have its biases. But what I think, what I say is like, so add something to your diet, do different things each day if you can. And then after a couple of weeks or a couple of months, you'll start to know, okay, so this source said this about this thing and it turned out they were totally wrong or they were clearly by, I mean, the point mm -hmm. is to develop your brain and you're going to start to know. The one, the one caveat to that though is what's called confirmation bias, right? Mm -hmm. So, and that's already a big problem. So you don't want to compose a diet that's really balanced and then start to strip away the ones that don't 
uh, fall in your confirmation bias because then you end up in the same kind of thought chamber or same kind of sort of echo chamber you were in before. So give those sources that you maybe might disagree with, give them a chance, give them a real chance and maybe you understand um, on this particular topic, I'm going to continue to have this in my in my media diet, but maybe not on this other topic. So it's it's there is a, there is an ongoing. It's not like a clear line to the goal. It's it's media consciousness. Is, it's a lifelong journey. You know, like you were comparing it to consciousness raising. Yeah, it, yeah, you don't just like sit on the cushion and then you know two hours later you're enlightened and you're you're Buddha and you get to sort of wander off into Nirvana. Uh, That's where you say you speak for yourself. I mean, <laughs> oh yeah, clearly you know present company excluded. I know we're all already in Nirvana. Um, no, no, no. Your your point's spot on, right? Yeah. That it's it's very much like democracy. You don't defend democracy in any one given election. It's an ongoing process where you make choices about whether you take this path or that path. And from a media consumption point of view. That's I right. think that's exactly right. And and the other point I really like about what you're saying, Tony, is this idea that your diet may shift depending on the topic you're talking about. You know, for instance, that you might have a reliable group of sources for politics, but something different for medical information. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that I, I found um, with this, now the book isn't out yet, um, but I've already had a number of conversations with people who who have like looked at some of my ideas online and stuff. Mm -hmm. And some, you know, the balanced media diet can feel a little overwhelming. I've had people say, "Oh my god, my life is already full, and I already barely have any time to read." And now you want me to add like six more sources on Tuesday and three more sources on Friday and stuff. So I did come up in the book, and I, I there's several tiers to the diet. There's sort of the I call it the sort of beginner level. And there's like intermediate journalist level and there's like advanced media critic. And then I call the media cleanse when you're like on a diet. And you're like, so the first one's like, I say, give it 30 minutes a day. This sort of medium is like 60 minutes a day. And there's two hours if you really want to be the media critic. And then the cleanse is like 30 minutes a week, you know, which I think is, you know, sometimes we should do that, like unplugging and just going out and wandering out in the forest and just, you know, thinking about life without the narrative. Um, I think is a great thing to do sometimes. But what I caution people is that you can't, unfortunately, you can't just choose not to inhale, so to speak. You, 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 some of us would say, well, I just don't read the news. And so like, I, I already, you know, I read the news in my 20s and I realized it was all full of crap. So I just stopped. The issue, the problem with that is that the, the media narratives are, they're the water that we swim in. You know, you can't necessarily see them, but they're there all of the time. And so you can't opt out of them because they're still dictating. The goal of the narrative is to control like how we hope, how we believe, how we fear, um, what career we should pursue, all of these kinds of things, what's going on in the world. And so it's they're way too it's it's too developed of an art for us to just opt out of. And even if you could, even if you could put in earplugs and meditate on the top of a mountain, I mean, I guess if you literally left Earth, okay, right. But short of that, it's going to come in through your friends and family too, right? Right. So we can't opt out. So so I say the unplugged option is a good option to do for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of days. But ultimately, yes, we do want to give thirty minutes a day or sixty minutes a day to to become informed and to become aware of what these narratives are because they are affecting us. In fact, I would say it is the single largest form of distortion and deception we have in American life today. It's so powerful. And we have the path to get through this. We have the path to understand it. It's just taking a little bit of time, slowing down, listening to more people, um, mm -hmm. and we can get through it. Yeah. Excellent. 
I, I think that's really good. I think the last question that I would ask is is more focused on how do we how do we practice this um in our in our daily lives? How do we how do we take action is what I'm looking for. Like when I what would you say is the quote unquote right thing to do when somebody uh comes across a media source that is either disinformation or censorship or is spot on how do you promote the things that are good um in a way that that makes it so that other people will actually engage with it and that's that's part of my frustration around election season every year is that like everybody is calling everybody a murderer a horrible person and like there's there's so little substance to it and that's something that just frustrates me so how do we how do we share things in a way that encourages other to be others to be curious and thoughtful as well? Yeah, great question. Um, it's funny we haven't even really discussed social media yet on this call, so I'll bring it up. I now. know that's it's, crazy. It's interesting, right? Like we started with Elon Musk and Twitter, and we it's because there's it's such a rich topic. There's so much, so I'll just bring in social media here a little bit, and this is where um, social media is the part of what I'm calling the new enlightenment of this internet revolution in consciousness, let's use that word, or information sharing at the least. Uh, it is a revolution and we're still in, you know, we're in the second quarter of a four quarter game or something. We don't know exactly where it's gonna go. I, I try to speculate uh, towards the end of the book where we're going. It plays a huge role. So yeah, so we do wanna use social media. I, I don't recommend unplugging from social media, although it it can certainly be toxic, it can be addictive and, and they've written these algorithms to, to do all kinds of damage in a certain sense, but again, with consciousness, we can use social media to, to promote the things you like and to, to and it is a tool, you know, or, or write emails. If you don't want to, if you're fed up with Facebook or Instagram, you know, write emails to your friends. Uh, use the internet um, to distribute. This is this is the first amendment uh, for the 21st century is you use the internet to distribute ideas that you think are good. This is democracy, this is science. This is how we, this is how we ask and answer questions, right? Science is not a set of answers, it's a way to question. And same with democracy, it's not a set of answers, it's a way to question, it's a way to discuss. So yeah, so if you come across a source that you're like, wow, this is really, really bad and full of crap and I know why, you might wanna just ignore it because right there's the whole idea of you can promote something even by trying to, or you say, look, I just wanna share this with my friends, share this with my family or whatever to, to whatever megaphone and platform you have. Maybe it's on your podcast, whatever it is, maybe it's when you get to, um, I don't know, give a speech accepting an award at the Rotary Club, whatever, whatever it is, like in the moment that you get to share. And if it's not those things, it's social media. Yeah, like promote the things that, that you find useful and don't promote the things that you don't and, and feel free to share negatives. I think that's that's how we get through this because censorship is anathema to science and democracy. Anything short of censorship, you know, we can sustain. But if you have censorship, you cannot have science. You're basically saying we're at the end of innovation because innovation always comes from the edges. It comes from the places where we're a little bit uncomfortable. The mainstream is happy with the status quo. They've got the wealth and power. They don't really need innovation, right? Innovation, whether it's democracy or science, it comes from the edges. It comes from people going, pushing the boundaries a little bit. Not all of them are. Some of them, it's totally wrong, right? But that's what you need. You need to bring in the fresh ideas. You need to bring in the new ideas. And then you, you look at them and you're like, like you just said, this one, it's not right. I'm not going to share it. It's I'm going to maybe even I'm going to say something negative about it. So people know how I feel, depending on if you want to or you just ignore it. 
this is a positive idea. This is this is innovation. This is something that would be useful to our democratic process or our scientific knowledge or innovation in the field that I know well. Maybe you're in business or something, right? So that that's that is how this goes. And so that's why the strongest words I reserve are for censorship. Yeah. Well, let me close this out, I think, Tony, with a an example that bears directly on the kinds of things that you're talking about. My wife is an art history professor here in New York City, and we have a lot of discussions about the fact that so much of art is made on the fringes, it, you know, to challenge in different ways. And to bring it directly to the topic that you're discussing, it's it, it has created a conflict with social media because artists who want to promote their edgy, disruptive, challenging pieces of art on social media are thereby directly challenging not just the artistic world, but social media as well, That's because right. they're forcing social media to confront whether or not they're willing to let that expression go out into the world. Fascinating stuff. <laughs> Amen. That's right where we're, that's exactly where we're at. And, you know, censorship, I'm not, I'm not defending speech that incites violence. I'm not defending libel. Sure. I mean, there's a couple of things that are already illegal forms of speech, but outside of those, yeah, if you've got a really edgy piece of artwork, you know, or an edgy song that you wrote or an edgy theory about some scientific topic, let it be heard. Let it be, let it be held up and let it be cast aside if it's worthless and let it be improved upon if it is useful. And that is a fantastic note to close this <laughs> close this out on. Jethro, anything you want to add? So much, but I will not. <laughs> <laughs> We're turning this already into quite an episode. So Tony, obviously, clearly a lot to talk about. And we really appreciate you being here today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. Once again, the book is called Red, White, and Blind, The Truth About Censorship in America and the Rise of Independent Media, and definitely one that uh, you should pick up, which um, is because we recorded this before it went out. It is available now, and you should definitely go get it at anywhere where you can buy books. Well, well done. Well, best of luck with that, Tony, and we look forward at some point to having you back and talking about uh, what else you've learned as you've gone through this process. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, digital communications, information, misinformation, and all of the rest of the challenges we face. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have guest question or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this episode. If that's the case, please leave us a five-star review. And we appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to seeing you on our next episode. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time 
without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.